Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode, I sit down with two members of the Nevada Rail Coalition, which consists of labor, environmental, and social justice groups that want to promote more train travel. We discuss their vision for the future of rail in the state. After that, reporter Jackie Valley comes on the show to talk about the governor's State of the State address. His speech covered everything from rising home prices to health care, law enforcement, and more. At the end of the show, reporter Diane Ohm comes on the show to talk to me about the homeless census, a yearly count of all of the homeless individuals around the country. Diane followed one group of volunteers in Las Vegas that helped gather data about why people lack housing. The Nevada Rail Coalition is a group of environmental organizations, passenger freight rail advocacy groups, social justice organizations, and community associations. And their goal is to build and expand the rail system here in Nevada. I sat down with two members of the coalition representing the union and environmental side. Ron Kamenko is with Rail Workers United, and Anne McQuarrie is a member of the Sierra Club here in the state, and they joined me to talk more about the coalition. the Nevada Rail Coalition, which is a, a new coalition here in Nevada, obviously focusing on rail, trains, Amtrak, things like that. And, and so thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having, for having us. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, let's, uh, to start off, what is this coalition? What's the goal of the coalition here? Transportation is now the biggest source of climate disrupting emissions in the U.S. And in Nevada specifically, the transportation sector has passed the electricity generation sector as the biggest contributor of greenhouse gases in Nevada. We do in Nevada have a climate mitigation strategy, which includes transportation mitigation, but no mention of any transportation except cars and trucks. Studies show that walking, biking, and rail are overall the most carbon efficient ways to get around. So if you take a train instead of a car for medium length distances, you cut your emissions by about 80%. That's huge. So we see this complete lack of understanding of rail as a climate mitigation strategy in Nevada. And we think it's an enormous mistake and a lack of vision because rail and in general, public transportation should be at the center of Nevada's future low-carbon transportation system. So we established the Nevada Rail Coalition. How are you planning on achieving these goals? Is it through lobbying efforts? Are you going to be like putting forward candidates? Or, or, or is it more of like a grassroots getting people involved? We have this immense opportunity that has just fallen in our lap with the bipartisan infrastructure law that passed Congress. So that is going to provide nationwide $66 billion in guaranteed funding for rail over five years. And $42 billion of that is going to flow through the Federal Railroad Administration in the form of competitive grants. So we saw this come down the pike and we thought it was an absolutely unprecedented opportunity to diversify and expand Nevada's multimodal transportation system. So all of our ideas about public outreach and talking to our leaders and so on is sort of coalescing around trying to get the people of Nevada, specifically our leaders, to understand that we can't let this opportunity for rail funding go by as an advocacy organization. So our goal in the next year or so is to reach out to transportation professionals and leaders 
in the state to get them to apply for funding for both freight and passenger rail projects. We, we actually feel like we have a good start because NDOT, the Nevada Department of Transportation, actually adopted last year a pretty good rail plan. So what we want to do is take the, the projects that, that are pretty much represented by the state rail plan and advocate for them and find champions for them so we can at least try to get some of this grant funding. I feel like I, I hear about rail projects that are getting proposed. Is it a financial thing? Is it, is it a planning thing? Is it just we don't have enough people working on it? Is that there's just not enough desire to see them? Why, why don't they pan out? The way that we organize transportation improvements, transportation planning in this country is generally done through regional transportation agencies. And if you're planning a high-speed rail route, or even if you're just planning to make it easier to get by rail from Reno to Emeryville, you pass through four of these regional transportation agencies' jurisdictions. So I think part of it is getting these this really fragmented balkanized agencies together to talk about more regional projects the united states is relatively unique in the world in that our rail infrastructure is largely in private hands we actually have one of the largest if not the largest rail networks in the world we have 150,000 miles of railroad still much of it has been abandoned in the last century but we still have Somewhere around 60% of the original rail network is intact. We do stand a real fighting chance to uh, rehab them and, and have them once again serving both freight and passenger rail. In many cases, the private freight railroads that gave up passenger trains many, many years ago, you don't make money on passenger trains. And this is more or less the rule in most cases even throughout the world, when people go to Europe and they're dazzled or China or Japan by these beautiful high-speed trains that run on time and are convenient and efficient and uh, comfortable and so forth, they're not making money. Just like highways aren't making money, they're heavily subsidized by the state. Do you have any other project agenda items right now, or are you waiting for that funding before you start pushing for projects and, and, and expansion of rail? There used to be an Amtrak route that went between Salt Lake and Los Angeles, stopping in Las Vegas. Restarting that route, it's called the Desert Wind. Right now, Las Vegas has no passenger rail service at all. So that would bring passenger rail service to Las Vegas. And then in the north, California has quite a successful route where, where the state of California is partnering with Amtrak. It's called the Capital Corridor Route, and it goes between Emeryville and then actually down to San Jose and then a little bit past Sacramento. It would be relatively easy to extend that route to Reno. So the extension of the Capital Corridor has been talked about in both Nevada and California and within Amtrak for probably a few decades and it, it, it does make a lot of sense. Donner Pass is closed on many, many occasions throughout the winter. The railroad can keep moving. And here's an example where it would be beneficial to both freight and passengers. The mountain needs some infrastructure. There are a couple of segments on the mountain that have been single tracked. We would need to see that restored. And then the capacity would dramatically increase for both freight and passenger trains. So it would be a boon for both. We want to see freight trains develop. We want to see trucks taken off the highway, especially for moves 
over three, four, five hundred miles, there's no need for that traffic to be on the highway. None of us like it, and it's way more efficient and environmentally sensitive to move that traffic onto the railroad. Also, providing the passenger option reduces the number of cars on the highway. What is the rail infrastructure like in, in Nevada right now? You said there was no services in Las Vegas, and we basically just have the one Amtrak line that goes from Truckee, Reno, Winnemucca, and then Elko. The map is has never been very full in the state of Nevada. Historically, in the 20th century, there were two railroad lines in the northern part of the state. The other route ran from Salt Lake City down through Las Vegas and then on to L.A. And those are pretty much the three main lines that the state has had historically. The infrastructure bill, right? Biden's infrastructure plan. How urgent is that to be working on those grants? What's the timeline for that? Well, the timeline for the competitive grant cycle is around five years. I think that it's going to be quite competitive. So I think jumping in with projects as shovel-ready as they could be as soon as possible would increase our chances of success. So I would say over the next one or two years, we want to strike when the iron is hot. What are the biggest challenges you're going to be facing right now to accomplish your goals? There was a time when there was 2 million railroad workers in this country, and now it's probably 10% of that number. Back then, everyone had a brother, father, cousin, aunt who worked for the railroad as a telegrapher, a baggage agent, a station agent, a conductor, an engineer, a brakeman, fireman, etc. We don't have that connection now. Towns were linked by passenger trains. That connection has now been lost for many, many people, especially in rural areas. So it's a challenge to convince people that trains are relevant in their lives and that they would benefit by an expansion of rail transportation. And it's one thing to tell people, well, look, you would be able to ride that train into the city. But when you start telling them that a more robust freight system is in their interest, that's a little harder sell than even the passenger angle because people go, well, I'm not a shipper. So we have to convince people that their air quality will be better, that their quality of life will be better in terms of less congested, less crumbling highways, because it's been said that a loaded semi exerts over 400 times the destructive effort to a interstate highway than a passenger automobile does. The big project that I feel like I think about when I think about rail is connecting Reno and Las Vegas. What's the likelihood of something like that happening? Well, that's that's part of the state's rail plan. And when I have thought about it, just how you might approach it, I'm thinking that doing a feasibility study, but a rigorous feasibility study that would that would give us a notion of the costs, the ridership would be something that I would like to see some level of state government request this grant funding to do. I would say that things like restoration of the desert wind, expansion of the capital corridor from Sacramento over the mountain to Reno, these are things that could probably be done relatively quickly and at a relatively low cost. 
And so therefore we would you know, like to move forward with them, get people in the idea of riding trains, of understanding that rail is very, very beneficial for our state. We don't wanna get bogged down like Texas and California have in building a high-speed rail uh, system between Reno and Las Vegas that could take decades that could ensue huge cost overruns. And then there's the political question of land condemnation, which would be necessary in some cases. Whereas when you have existing rail corridors already, whether they be branch lines, abandoned lines, or functioning main lines, you can actually restore passenger trains and increase freight traffic on existing lines far cheaper, far quicker. So just from a strategic political point of view, it might make sense to do those things first and then move into a more substantial project like linking uh, northern and southern Nevada. Is there anything that I didn't get to that you guys wanted to talk about before we wrap up? Another thing that we haven't yet talked about is, is regional transit. And around the country over the last quarter century, we've seen Towns and cities developing a regional transit network. If you go to Denver, it's unrecognizable today compared to what it was just 20 years ago. Salt Lake City now has a both a heavy rail and a light rail system that they didn't have 15 years, 20 years ago. Even Albuquerque is running a train between Albuquerque and, and Santa Fe. And so there's a number of examples of this. So the Sierra Club here in Nevada put together a proposal for a regional transit system running east, west, north, and south with downtown Reno at the Amtrak station being also the transfer point. And so same thing could be potentially done in Las Vegas as well, as cities and towns, like I say, all over the country are now moving in that direction to alleviate highway congestion, bad air quality. And also this whole issue of transportation justice. There's lots of people who cannot drive, uh, are disabled, incapable of driving, cannot afford a car and the insurance and the gas. And we need to provide transportation alternatives so that people can get to work, so that people can have uh, healthy lives and be contributing members of society. All right. And again, that was Ann McQuarrie and Ron Kimmenkow. Uh, they're with the Nevada Rail Coalition. If you want to learn more about them, you can visit nevadarailcoalition.org. And now we're moving on from trains to uh, to to the governor. Uh, Jacob, why don't you uh, tell me what's the next uh, segment we've got here? That's right. Last week, we got a State of the State address from the governor, a rare off-year event that traded snowy Carson City for sunny Las Vegas. Yeah, he was in the uh, he was in the Raiders, the Raiders Stadium, giving the state of the state. And our reporter Jackie Valley went down there with our photographer Jeff Scheid, and uh, we're going to hear more from Jackie now. Hi, Jackie. Hey, Joey. How's it going? Not too bad. Good. So you were uh, you were at Allegiant Stadium the other day, and there was a uh, there was some drama actually with her photographer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got off to a little bit of a rocky start when press arrived and photographers were told they couldn't actually take photos of Sisolak speaking. Yeah, that was uh, and that was because uh, there is a Metallica concert coming to the, the stadium, right? And they didn't want the stage to get photos taken of it. It was a very odd situation that had to do with the stadium and not the governor, right? Yeah, it, it was bizarre. I mean, the, essentially... I think the governor's office was told by stadium officials that there couldn't be photography of 
the arena and the field because a stage was being set up probably for proprietary concerns with the concert. That would be my guess, but didn't really go over well with the photographers who had all been invited to this major speech by the governor. <laughs> yeah, it was a very odd start. It was also kind of an odd time to give a state of the state. We don't get a state of the state every year. We usually, this is an off year, but we did get one this year. And a lot of people were saying is, you know, we've got an election coming up. Sisolak's going to be running for governor again. It's just kind of a, almost a campaign event, huh? Yeah. Well, it's funny you use the word an odd year. (laughs) Actually, state of the state speeches are usually given in the odd number years right ahead of the legislative session. So the fact that this is an even-numbered year where there is no legislature is rare. It does happen. Former Governor Jim Gibbons gave a speech in 2010 related to the Great Recession. But this is the first one since then. So it's been about 12 years. Yeah. I mean, and Sisolak did touch on a ton of different stuff. And a lot of it, to me, I mean, I was like, okay, what are the details here? And, and I, I, I'm not, not to discount what he was saying. I think that there needs to be more than just like, here's a thing that we're going to be doing with no additional details. But obviously, he had to keep the say the state short and succinct. So let's get into some of the things he talked about. One of the first things that he like hit on, like the first point he wanted to make was that he's not raising taxes. Yeah, that's been a line we've heard throughout his administration. So it wasn't a big surprise to hear that echoed. But keep in mind that this state of the state address was largely dealing with how to spend flexible American Rescue Plan funding. So those are the federal funds that were allocated to help with pandemic recovery. So it's a great, wonderful thing, but it's really not the state's doing. It's coming from the federal government. The state just gets to choose how they are spending the money. Yeah. And and some of those spending things, the first one you mentioned was $160 million uh, towards lower cost childcare and to support childcare workers. Yeah. And so that has followed a trend also within the state. I mean, even nationally, there's been a lot of talk about how we are in a childcare crisis. There just simply aren't enough workers at daycares, preschools, et cetera, to take care of the youngest members of society while their parents work. That was exacerbated by the pandemic. We know that those workers tend to get low wages and in fact, often can earn more money working at say Chick-fil-A or Walmart. Obviously it takes a certain person to have the kindness and the spirit associated with caring for kids. So that's been a big emphasis. The governor and some other elected officials were at a new resource center in Las Vegas that was opening on Tuesday. The $160 million investment, it was a little vague on details, but it'll go toward trying to broaden care across the state. And the big investment that he also mentioned, um, he acknowledged this affordable housing crisis that we've been going through, but the Home Means Nevada initiative is $500 million. Um, I believe the quote that he says was to lower costs of housing for people to stay in their homes and to create good paying jobs. Yeah, officials said it's also that federal recovery money. It sounds like it's a three-tiered approach. Some of it will go toward housing construction to increase inventory. They also said they would provide more opportunities for homeownership. So I don't quite know what that means. I'm speculating maybe like, grants to help first-time homeowners or uh, certain low-income residents. I'm not quite sure. The third part is retrofitting for senior homes. And I think that's really geared toward making sure that their homes are safe and in good condition so they are able to stay there and don't have to go look for housing elsewhere. I think it's important to note that we reporters were not allowed to ask questions after the press conference. So some of the details are still murky because we just don't have much more other than what what was said in the roughly 20-minute speech. Yeah. Following that up with joining the Northwest Prescription Drug Consortium, it's a mouthful, with Oregon and Washington. What's that? That is an effort to lower prescription drug costs. So that has been a consistent theme over the last cycle as well. And it's just continuing down that road. 
Another thing he brought up getting into education a little bit, which is you have a background in, is parents participating in schools. That's an interesting point he wanted to hit on. Yeah, it was a subtle nod within the rest of his speech and spending announcements. There's obviously been a lot of talk about school choice. There are ballot initiatives aiming to revive uh, a voucher-style program that would divert public school money to private school, other educational expenses. That just ran into a legal challenge this week. So I think it was possibly his way of saying the pandemic certainly brought parents into the fold in some ways, more so in the past in terms of education. But there is an acknowledgement that right now there is more clamoring for school choice and a parent voice. We may be reading too much into that, but he did mention it within his broader spending comments about education. The two main things on the spending front were expanding free school lunches statewide for another year, and then also providing some stipends and tuition assistance for future teachers. I think he said roughly 4000 So that is also meant to address another huge problem, which is the ongoing teacher shortage. And another shortage that he brought up uh, moving from education to crime rates is he acknowledged a rise in crime, but he said that we have a shortage of state police. Yeah. So he intends to ask the legislature to increase salaries for state troopers, police officers next year. So that's something that is more on the horizon than happening right now. It has to be done in the legislature, but he did bring it up. And again, it fits well with the theme we heard, not enough teachers, not enough nurses, perhaps not enough troopers right now as well, because he did also mention some sort of a task force or study of the healthcare profession, which seemed to hint at another effort to bolster those ranks. Yeah, I actually thought it was pretty interesting. You know, Sislak as a Democrat really stood out to me was he said, I've always supported increase in funding for our police. Yeah, he did mention that. I think you have to keep in mind that his possible Republican opponent could be Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo. Obviously, we don't quite know yet because it's a crowded uh, Republican field and we'll have to wait and see how that turns out in the June primary. There's a chance he could be going up against the sheriff in his reelection bid. And he also talked about task force, a lot of task force and, and, and these, these committees, but was uh, to stop unnecessary licensing in the state when it comes to small businesses. Yeah. So, I mean, they, and they noted people have to get licensed for everything from barbers to teachers, occupational therapists, et cetera. We all know there's lots of bureaucratic red tape anytime the word licensing pops up. So I think this is their effort to streamline it and make sure that in a time when it can be difficult to secure workers, that this isn't an additional hurdle in hiring folks. And then he also mentioned the infrastructure bill that passed federally and what that's going to be doing for the state. Yeah. And so as part of that, he announced that there would be a $500 million initiative to increase broadband connectivity across the state. That would be a braiding of multiple funding sources. And that's been an ongoing effort here. We know that there are quite a few folks in our rural areas and even our urban areas who do not have access to high-speed internet. He mentioned free community college for, for some members of society. Yeah, I think it's important to look at how they worded it because it was not saying free community college. It said, make community college and training programs free for more state residents. Mm. So not a universal program, at least the way I read it, an increase in funneling more people into those programs um, for free. All right. Well, that that's I think that's everything in his speech. Like, like I said, kind of a different speech and it felt a, a little bit of a different year to be doing this, this thing. And, and part of that is probably because there's a governor's race coming up. Yeah, I think we have to keep 
that in mind and look at it slightly with a grain of salt because it was wonderful to hear about all the new spending initiatives and certainly exciting to think about all the possibilities with the American Rescue Plan funding. But it is a re-election year. And so this was a way for the governor to get out in front of the state and talk about some good things happening, even if his office denies that it was campaign related. It's that time of year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'll wrap up with this, which is one of my favorite quotes from this was when he talked about how he used to make dinners for his daughters that they did not like. That was very funny and cute. Yes, and his daughters and uh, wife were in attendance. (laughs) Yes, yes. And and as 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 per usual, there were some teary eyes from the governor uh, to wrap up his speech. Yeah, he always gets emotional talking about his family. Yeah. All right, Jackie. Well, thank you for joining me and talking about the state of the state. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more from uh, reporting soon. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Joy. If you want to find Jackie's full story from February 23rd, you can find that on the NevadaIndependent.com. And now, Joey, you've got a story from Las Vegas for us. That's right. I, uh, I was chatting with our new intern, Diane Ohm, and she got up at the crack of dawn at like 3.30 a.m. to go uh, join some volunteers and follow them around while they did the homeless census. Well, I'm here with newest intern, Diane Ohm. And you were recently up bright and early at at 3.30 a.m. to go participate in what's called the Homeless Census in Las Vegas. This is done across the United States. Tell me a little bit about it. What is it? So the U.S. Department of Housing asked Department of Social Services around the country to participate in counting homeless populations. So this has to be done manually. So they recruit volunteers to go out bright and early, just like I did at 4 a.m. So they can tour the area around the city hall so they can count the homeless population that they see on the side of the roads, empty parking lots. And yeah, just like anywhere that you see a homeless person, you go approach them and you ask them a couple of survey questions and you also give them uh, socks and bus passes as a thank you for their contribution and their time. What's the point of this? Why are they wanting to count the, the homeless population? So the whole point of counting the homeless population is to get an idea and a sense of uh, where they are in terms of this homelessness issue and also to plan ahead so they can recruit resources and plan some interventions if needed to curb the number of homeless population they see on the streets. Can you walk me through a little bit of that morning? Like you said, bright and early, you, I think you said you woke up at 3, 3 a.m., 3.30 a.m. What, what did you see and what was the process like? So I got there around 4.30 in the morning at the North Las Vegas City Hall and volunteers were already there and they were divided into groups and the people who were administering the event were handing out a bag of socks, safety vests, flash lights, bus passes, snacks, and maps of the areas that they want the volunteers to circle around. When you go out in person and you spot a tent or a makeshift cardboard houses with uh, maybe a shopping cart nearby, then that's usually an indicator that there's a person nearby. So we would get out of the car and see if that person is like indeed there, living there or sleeping there. And then we would approach them and ask them like if they want to participate in the survey. So the volunteers are asked to use a survey app. And there's usually a prompt that volunteers are supposed to read to the homeless people to introduce what the purpose of this survey is. What were some of the questions that were being asked? 
So some of the questions were mostly like demographic information, like their age, maybe if they want to share their name, they can, and their health history, they, how long they have been on the streets, how many times they've been homeless, and things like that. And if there are other people living there with them, like maybe if they're minor, then we would definitely select. Yeah. What what were the stats? What was how was the change from 2021 to 2022? So the 2022 census is not out yet. So and it will be ready in the next few months. But until then, the volunteers and the people on the ground are saying that they have definitely seen an increase in the homeless population. So that's an indicator, and we're waiting to see if the numbers actually do point to that increase. How did they see numbers change from 2020 to 2021? How has the pandemic shaped homelessness? Because when you think of the pandemic, it hit a lot of people. A lot of people lost their jobs. I'm assuming homelessness went up. Also, the housing crisis that we're in here in Nevada right now, with just a lack of housing and a lack of affordable housing, I'm assuming that that has also led to some more homelessness, right? Yeah, definitely. They're saying that the price of rent has increased and that has definitely contributed to the increase in homelessness over the years. But in 2020 and 2021, there was only a slight difference, but that can be explained by the different methodologies that were used in those years. And the methodologies were definitely impacted by COVID as well. In 2020, they did a complete survey of the entire area. They canvassed uh, entire maps with volunteers, and that was the usual process that they did in the previous years. But then in 2021, and they couldn't do that, obviously, because of the pandemic, and they uh, were worried about the safety of the volunteers and the homeless people. So they only did a random survey of the select population, and that pointed to like a slight increase, as I said, but that could not have been the full data that could have been possible if it had not been for um, the pandemic. And did you talk to anyone that runs uh, the shelters in Las Vegas? And, you know, what are they seeing? Yes, I spoke with Michelle Fuller, who is the manager in the Department of Social Services. And she said she has definitely seen an increase in the number of people asking for homeless resources and like access to providers. And she's saying that more housing owners and rental services need to provide services for these people um, since the rental prices are spiking. Cool. All right, Diane. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Anne McQuarrie, Ron Kimmenkow, Jackie Valley, and Diane Ohm for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, shoes that will let me sneak into the kitchen at 3 a.m. to eat a bag of shredded cheese without waking up my roommates, or whatever else is on your mind, at joey at com or jacob at com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Now, moving from the governor's... <laughs> no, I'll say, you know... You know <laughs> there's, there's your blueprint. <laughs> from the governor's...